All right, man, this is episode number 71 of the Cozy Corner of Cinema. This is being recorded on Sunday, August 6th, 2023 at 6.34 p.m. Uh, the audio quality on the microphone may sound different. It was acting up a little bit ago. This microphone's giving me nothing but headaches, but it's uh, it was a gift, so I can't really complain too much. I just would need to invest in something a little more consistent sometime soon, but... Uh, looking outside, I mean, the sun is starting to set, at least. The shadows are growing on the ground. You can hear the birds outside flying around and talking about God knows what, man. The cats are outside sleeping under the beautiful sun. There's a nice breeze in the air. It's a little a little humid, but not too much where it's uncomfortable, where you just feel your clothes sticking to you. You know, it's a fine line between a nice kind of heat as opposed to feeling just like the floor of a dirty movie theater or something. You just feel like sticky, man. It's just gnarly as hell. But uh, I hope you all have been doing very well. I hope you have been using your time wisely in whatever way that you want to do so. Um, this weekend has been extremely productive. Um, I, I had three goals for this weekend primarily, as I do every day. But uh, with the free time to use that, in a way that was productive to do plenty of watching, plenty of reading, and plenty of writing. And all three were accomplished greatly. And now as the sun is setting, I can look back and reap the benefits and say it was a good weekend spent, you know. Every day you want to keep just keep the momentum going, keep it flowing, keep it flowing, just making your dreams come true, man. I was thinking back a little while ago to when you take in a lot of arts, whether that be films or music or uh, literature or any anything of the such, I've been thinking a lot lately about the connectivity between them all. I think about like months ago when I uh, came across to watch uh, the documentary from 1974, I think. I don't remember what year it was. Mid-70s, Town Blade Hall which I've talked about a couple of times in the show, a really interesting documentary and the center of it being Norman Mailer, somebody who I previously was not very familiar with his work. I wasn't even aware that he had been an author. I'd known him primarily for his film, Tough Guys Don't Dance, unaware of, and I've also knew about the um, altercation between him and Rip Torn on the set of uh, Maidstone. I believe it was Maidstone, but I think about that. And then from Town Bloody Hall, I watch Tough Guys Don't Dance. I read the book um, about Norm Mailer, A Double Life, the biography published uh, after his death. And then from there, I discover that the Criterion Eclipse DVD set has three of his films, Maidstone, Wild 90, and the last one I'm blanking on the name on. I apologize. And I just think about the connective, the connective tissue really that kind of comes with it all of just one to another to another. You know, I'm thinking like the other day with the news the unfortunate passing of uh mr paul rubens and i think about subconsciously or unsubconsciously you know either or his work with tim burton and films like peewee's big adventure and um batman returns and what's interesting about that is that um i this past weekend i had never seen tim burton's sleepy hollow from uh i think 1999 Actually, let me look up that year. I think it was late 90s that came out. It had to have been, because it was post-Buffalo 66 with Christina Ricci. Yes, 1999. And from there, 
you know, typically I have a way of putting together the films that I intend to watch on an evening. And uh, I, I don't typically scroll endlessly on streaming services because you do that for so long, man. I mean, you end up spending more time trying to find a film than actually watching it. And God forbid you fall asleep, you wake up the next day, you're like, I got to figure out where I was. And now the momentum is totally lost. So if you're, if there was a big emotional buildup, well, now you've just severed it by taking a break and you'd best be just, you know, restarting from the beginning, but there's other obligations you have to get to. So other films you got to watch that it could sometimes be uh, tricky. But my point with that is, I kind of trail off there a little bit, but my point with that is I, uh, I had come across Edward Scissorhands from, I don't even know why I bring up the years. I'm all, I never get it right, man. But I, it was a, it was a, a very populist film that I had never seen previously. And because I had just watched Sleepy Hollow with Johnny Depp, directed by Tim Burton, I thought, okay, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and watch just because it's in my mind. And then from there, I was like, you know what? I'm in the mood to watch, to rewatch Ed Wood also with Johnny Depp also directed by Tim Burton, and whether or, it, whether or not it was intentional or not, I just think back to the Paul Rubens connection, especially I think of a film like Blow from 2001, which also has Johnny Depp in it, and uh, you could say that these are very thin lines to stretch across. I mean, you can find any actor and can, you know, connect it in any which way you can, but, but I'm just thinking of, as I look back, and uh, even in terms of, like, a Johnny Depp uh, uh, connection. I've been watching more work of his as of late because of the 1993 episode that's coming out. He did a couple of films that year, and I've now watched all three of them. I believe he only did three. If he did more, I haven't gotten to those yet, but I've watched um, What's Eating Gilbert Grape, Benny and June, and Arizona Dream. And, or maybe it was Arizona Dream. I don't remember the name of it. Um, and, you know, all 90s films, those Edward Scissorhands, Ed Wood, Sleepy Hollow, and just seeing the connective tissue throughout uh, is is fascinating how it all kind of stems from somewhere whether we know it or not I mean you know if somebody recommends I mean it's the same thing where uh, something I'll talk about in a little bit but if somebody recommended you know when I was talking about going to see uh, Oppenheimer and my anticipation for that and um, I decided to watch rewatch Dunkirk uh, and Tenet and Interstellar all because of that connectivity it's just an interesting, interesting connection there. I apologize. I'm trying to have too much uh, moments of silence. I'm also going to be stuttering too much, so I apologize if there are some pauses in between here and there. I've, had, I've also had a lot of difficulty trying to record this today. I've had many issues, so if you're listening to this right now, then we got the uh, final product. <coughs> final product out. My throat's also sore as hell, so I do apologize if I sign a little more faint than I normally do. But I just finished up a book I read. I finished up a book. Um, a book from 2018, I believe. I think the copyright was 2018. About the making of Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey. Uh, the full title is... Uh, let me pull it up right here so I can give proper credit. And, you know, you think I'd have that prepared. But I haven't. Yeah, the full title is Space Odyssey, Stanley Kubrick, Arthur C. Clarke, and the Making of Masterpiece, written by Michael Benson. And it is a fantastic read. I blazed through this, man. This is about uh, a little over 500 pages, not counting acknowledgments. And um, 
any any kind of afterword or the sources pages and not like that. And so I'm 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 reading this book and I'm I'm near the beginning. And for context's sake, it makes me want to rewatch 2001: A Space Odyssey, a film that previously this I hadn't seen probably since 2018, I believe, because I've seen. I've only ever seen the film up until that point theatrically twice. I'd seen it for the first time on 70 millimeter and it was one of the most brilliant experiences of my life. It's truly one of those moments that you look back on with uh, pure just reverence and pure just nirvana, man. It's sort of like, wow, if only I'd known what I was getting myself into in terms of life changing moments. And then soon after, I uh, was able to witness it in IMAX digital, which was just as special. The fact that it's in a digital format, but it's on a massive uh, 143 by 3 IMAX screen, blue aspect ratio. I think I got it wrong last time when I was talking about Oppenheimer. I think it's like 143 to 1 or something like that. I, I messed it up all there. But So I don't ever seen these films, the, the film theatrically. It's a film that's really made specifically for the for the theater. I mean, this was put out in 70 millimeters, 70 millimeter Cinerama, um, with eventual 35 millimeter prints to traditional cinemas. And it's a film that is primarily a visual medium in terms of less heavy, less dialogue, more the surroundings and the audio and the masterwork that goes behind it. It's a film that's been analyzed to death. It's been talked about to death, but reading it in this context, it really kind of elevates it to a, another level where now I'm looking forward to watching it again with certain contexts now in place of certain moments in the film that were either unintentional or the difficulties behind them. The difficulties of the Dawn of Man sequence with the ape outfits, um, the troubles that they had with some of the set designs, the way that they had done these special effects, specifically with the Stargate sequence. And I will say, one of the things that is a bit of a detriment to the book, at least from my perspective, and it's not even a fault of Michael Benson's, I think it's primarily just because I'm, I'm more of a visual guy, so I'm able... You can tell me something a hundred times, or you can show it to me once, and I'll get it that once. Um, but when explaining in depth some of the visual effects that go into it, while the film does have, while the book does have some illustrations as to how they did certain sequences, specifically a great drawing of how they did the Stargate sequence with a slit in this paper and the camera painting forward, it is a little difficult at times to fully understand how exactly it did it because this is all, I mean, this is all new ideas they're working with, man. A lot of times in the book. They talk about things they didn't know how to do, but Kubrick wanted it done, and his sort of consistency in pushing the envelope, unbeknownst to the people involved, you know, it, it, it's, it's really kind of, when I say ahead of its time, it, it's using new technology in a way where uh, later on when there is an issue, <coughs> excuse me, when there, when there is a, I'm going to sip this beverage, hold on a second. When there is a trademark issue, well, a seemingly like, wanting to be a trademark on the on the setup for how they've made the Stargate sequence, the special effects, one of the special effects uh, crew, which I apologize, I'm blanking on his name, just about four or five people that were involved with the special effects, um, didn't want to, did, was against the idea, and when Kubrick said that he would just do it himself, he would have them figure it out, they couldn't, um, and ultimately never came to fruition. But it's a book that, when I talked before about the connectivity between certain films, you know, I end up 
rewatching this, which I'll say that it was this is my first time seeing it at home. You know, that 4K looks brilliant. I watched it loud. It looked fantastic. But I still sincerely think this is not meant to be seen at home. Now, granted, we're in a we're the golden age of home video right now because you're watching this on a beautiful 4K HDR uh, release in Dolby Atmos, I believe. I don't know if it was Atmos or 5.1. It looks great. It sounds great. And if you have the opportunity to see it theatrically, then you should. But, but I also understand that not everyone, it doesn't always show, and not all of us have the opportunity to see some of these films theatrically, so we kind of have to take what we get. But I'm just saying that seeing, having only seen this film theatrically both times, seeing it at home is a unique experience in and of itself. Um, far, far better than perhaps watching it on a VHS or a, or a DVD or, or something along those lines. But it, this, this had led me to rewatch um, Eyes Wide Shut, his final film from 1999, uh, with Tom Cruise, Nicole Kidman, and a memorable role from the great Sidney Pollack. This was a film that I'd only seen once before, and in terms of not just the context of the film itself, but more about the context as to Kubrick's passing after his first edit of the film, there it, this this goes this talks very briefly in the Space Odyssey book about and, and which has also been talked about in the um i always get the name incorrect so i want to actually look it up the terrific book written by peter bisquand you know i always want to say it's the i get his name mixed up with the director of um the duke of burgundy peter strickland that's what it is i i always get peter bisquand i'm sorry peter bisquand and Peter Strickland mixed up. I'm like, hey, one of them directed Barbarian Sound Studio. The other's an author. And uh, this was his book from 2004, Down and Dirty Pictures, uh, Miramax, Sundance, and the Rise of Independent Film. And I believe it was this book, unless I read something else around that time, but I can't for life remember. So either it gives me an opportunity to bring this one up again. But it, there's a great section about the making of this film and about the speculation as to after Kubrick's passing, whether the cut released is his intended cut. Um, now when it comes down to it, the, I think the film is brilliant as is. Um, it's a polarizing film much in the same way as most of his work. I mean, there's a lengthy portion at the end of this book, which I found to be some of the strongest about the release of the film and the difficulties and the stresses that Kubrick went through in the public reception to the film, how this kind of, Kubrick probably wanted to, I got the idea that Kubrick wanted to see himself as this sort of enigma, this anomaly, but when it came to the, to the aggressive reactions that people were having, critics were being very harsh on the film, audiences hated the film, there were massive walkouts um, at the initial test showings, and the book talks about his total, almost kind of a breakdown in a way, where he feels like a failure, and he feels like he has spent all this time and all this effort to make something bad, which in retrospect is easy to look on the other side and, and see the obvious genius that, that is there. Um, but much in the same way, there are films that release now that uh, will, you know, have it panned or maybe are, are hard to grasp and, and are transgressive, but time or time will, will tell whether they stand the test of time or not. Uh, that was a redundant sentence, but bear with me. This is my, my fifth time trying to record this. So if I stumble over my words, please forgive me. I look at something like Tenet, which I'm in no way comparing to 2001, but a film like that, a very 
um, also science fiction film, but a very um, polarizing film where when you walk out, I mean, my initial reaction when I walked out was that was brilliant. That was that was a true masterwork from a master artist, but it's also fair, a lot of the criticism of the film, of a lot of people giving very fair and, and honest criticisms about maybe some of the plot structures from the characters. Those are all fine, but when it comes to a film like that, that is taking these giant weird risks that I think completely pay off. I think Tenet is a brilliant film. I think it's one of the strongest films of the 21st century so far, but I also don't blame anyone for having strong and negative reactions to that film. That's why I feel, and I've said it before, I think films like that that aren't universally praised or dismissed make for a far more interesting conversation. You know, I, I've heard some talk about the last Ari Aster film, Bo is Afraid, which I haven't seen yet. Um, admittedly, I, I wasn't the biggest fan of Hereditary, but I understand that film has is, has garnered quite a, a positive reputation. Um, so I wasn't in a rush to see Bo is Afraid, but I, I from some acquaintances of mine, I've, I've heard some very... Uh, strong reactions when we one side or the other, both positive and negative. And that's better off that way because now when I go to watch it, whenever that might be, whether I like or dislike the film is beside the point. The point is that I have no expectations and it can be hard to not have expectations. I mean, ultimately, I've said before, it, it's sometimes very, it's easy to be biased. You know, I see the trailer for Oppenheimer and I go, I'm excited for that film, but I also want to be, I don't want to just be ready to love it because then I'm going to be looking past any legitimate issues that I might have with it. Or I see the trailer for Killers of the Flower Moon, the new Martin Scorsese film, and I, I'm looking forward to that quite a bit. But I also got to make sure, I also remember that I got to watch it just as a film first, you know, and then any kind of secondary um, excitement has to, has to come after the fact, you know. But Eyes Wide Shut as well was another film that, and I'm upset, you know, 2001 and Eyes Wide Shut, all of Kubrick's films have been analyzed to death. I mean, he's 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 such an interesting artist of mankind where he didn't put out, I don't want to say didn't put out a lot of work, because that's definitely not true. But compared to, to, to some of his contemporaries, the amount of work that he put out and the quality of every film is something to be kind of marveled at. Even if and I'm talking about his primary, primarily his features. I'm not really counting um, Fear and Desire, uh, even Killer's Kiss in a way, which I think is a very good film. But I would say up to up, starting with the killing and ending with Eyes Wide Shut. I'm also not talking about any of his early documentaries. That's a whole other kind of topic. But the fact that each and every one of these films has are, are meticulously made, it's sort of astonishing that they exist at all at a time period when studio executives and chiefs stood behind their filmmakers and let their artistic visions reign in. Now we've seen the the upside and downside to that to those situations. I talked a while ago about the fantastic book about Michael Cimino and the rise and fall of his career and perhaps maybe him taking a lot of the brunt of the death of filmmaker-driven studio films, which the book uh, makes a very good point that he should not be given the brunt for that. It's, it was a, it was all it was a, many other factors that went into it which is not to say it's completely free of the charge, but it's a fascinating book. I highly recommend that. But the book, this book discusses in depth about MGM's, uh, the the president of MGM at the time, uh, I think his name was Robert Smith. I might, might have gotten that completely wrong. I'm pretty bad at names and dates lately. How he really stood behind Kubrick after the massive success of Dr. Strangelove. You know, Kubrick was over budget, over time, I mean, it's a miracle. It not only came out, but it's a miracle that it ends up ends up being 
I mean, in, possibly the most famous science fiction film ever. Let's not call it Star Wars. I mean, it's, even if you haven't seen the film, the imagery and the the soundtrack, everything about it has seeped its way into pop culture. Where you, even though he's using classical film, a classical score. A lot of those in the film you associate with 2001, the year after the fact, much in the same way that you can watch Kill. You don't you don't have to see Battles Without Honor of Humanity to know the soundtrack that is used in Kill Bill that seeps its way into pop culture where you see a film or a parody or anything like that about martial arts or kung fu and you hear that soundtrack people associate with Kill Bill, but it's actually from these these other works. Or, you know, Tarantino is, is famous for that, for lifting a lot of these just great um he's 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 brilliant at needle drops. He's brilliant at when to use these um these musical stings. Like you have that great moment in I think at the end of volume one or maybe it was in volume two, I don't remember Kill I don't remember about Kill Bill. It's been a couple years since I've seen it, but they use the one of the pieces of music from uh, one of my favorite Gialli, The Strange Vice of Mrs. Ward, and it works so well in that film, and it works so well in Kill Bill as well. But Eyes Wide Shut, I want to go back to this a little bit, I, I think has... It, it's, what's interesting about the film is that while you have, you know, still giant movie stars, Tom Cruise, who has made repeated fantastic Hollywood films, I mean, I just, I just saw the new Mission Impossible a couple weeks ago and, and thought it was fantastic. It was such a joyous uh, film. And then you have Nicole Kidman, who has had such an interesting career doing a lot of big-budgeted Hollywood films and a lot of also quieter, smaller films, doing very interesting roles. Um, and it's the way that Kubrick does it that makes these Hollywood stars but puts them in an environment that still feels dangerous and haunting. Um, I had forgotten... Which is, sounds like an insane thing to say, but I had forgotten specifically about the the famous orgy sequences in the middle of the film. Uh, I forgot two things. Number one, how much time is after that? I always kind of associated that with being in the third act, but really watching it again, that's really the second half. The 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 or that really begins the second half because everything after that really takes its time and it's in a way that feels rewarding. But the other point I wanted to bring up was the sound design and the, the score that's used in that sequence. Much in the same way at the end of 2001 in the um, in the bedroom, that kind of chilling, uh, echoing sound effects, these, this experimental score that I actually lifted part of that for a short film that I did that um, I, I thought complemented the scene very well. Uh, at least uh, that's what I thought. Um, but it's the, this repetitive score that's... Un it gets under your skin and the imagery walking through these hallways feels incredibly dangerous and it feels like Tom Cruise is actually in, in real danger. It's, Kubrick is able to kind of transport you by, by, by taking these kind of familiar people that you know, not using obscure actors, but also is able to put them in a setting of its own that feels otherworldly. You know, the criticism has been lauded at the film about London masquerading as New York and Truthfully, I don't know much how much of that was intentional or not, for, because it doesn't look like New York, man. New York, a lot of the exteriors of the, you, you just can't even imagine that. But also at the same time, you look at parts of the film, or, or, or I think it happens once, I don't know if it happens more than once, but when Tom Cruise's character is walking down the street and he they filmed him on a treadmill 
with a uh, background shot, and it feel it doesn't feel like he's on the street, but it also has this hypnotic dream quality that fits with the rest of the film. It feels like, like an alienated kind of version of New York that whether or not it's intentional, that it's kind of supposed to be an altered version of it is it's completely up in the air. I really don't know. There's a couple, there's two books on my current to read list. Um, one of which is specifically about the making of Eyes Wide Shut, um, and the other is just a book about uh, Kubrick himself from one of his assistants, not not the main assistant from uh, who's the I'm blanking on, I apologize, but who was the basis of the um, documentary film worker from twenty. Uh, I don't remember if I watched it for twenty eighteen or twenty twenty one. I think I watched it for twenty eighteen. Yeah, no, I had it had it been twenty eighteen. But either way, it's uh, it's a film that I think has. I don't know if it's generally, I mean, it's revered, but I, I to me, that's like, in, in an already impressive career, Eyes Wide Shut is one of those films, one of the films he's done the most that's really um, had a real haunting quality. I would say that more so than even something like A Clockwork Orange or Lolita, because I think A Clockwork Orange and Lolita are both brilliant films. I'm, you know, I, I can't stress that enough, but A Clockwork Orange is much more visceral and Lolita is much more literal. Whereas Eyes Wide Shut is, it's visceral in the sexuality with the graphic sexuality, whereas, you know, Clark Orange has that as well as the violence, but it, it works on a plane of its own reality that even when it's over, it's, it still feels like an, like an intentional disconnect from a traditional linear structure what he does in that film is really lets these sequences play out in a way where, I mean, obvious parallel, 2001, just letting these really long takes, but it's not just like in 2001 where you have these long takes and these long, beautiful tracking shots. It's these long takes of these great monologues and of these, you can see the uncertainty in Tom Cruise's character, you know? And I love, you know, I think Tom Cruise is a fantastic movie star. He's made terrific films in the past couple of years, but I also do kind of long for these days where he was, you know, films like this or Magnolia. Um, I mean, I get where he, he really did show how strong of an actor he really is. And I think the last film that he did that I thought really showed that especially was probably American Made, the Doug Lyman film, um, which was, I think, marketed as something else entirely. But it's really more so just kind of a uh, thriller drama that I think went kind of under the radar. But of his recent work is one of his strongest acting roles. It shows his charisma and how it shows I mean, his charisma, definitely, but but his longevity of being just a really good actor as well as being a great action star, you know? And I think that um, I'll have to come back to this discussion when I eventually read that book because I find that whole era of film kind of transitioning to something else entirely with the, uh, you know, along with the death of one of mankind's greatest artists to be incredibly fascinating. And the end result of that is such a... I can only say, you can only say interesting or fascinating so many times before it starts to get redundant, but what Eyes Wide Shut really is is something unique from Kubrick's other work that also varies with his other work. You know, what I mean by that is that all of his work feels, they feel so much like a Kubrick film, but they also, none of them feel similar in a way where you can watch 2001 and you can watch like Barry Lyndon and you can watch even something earlier, like, I don't know, The Killing or something like that. And they all feel like his films, but they all feel so uniquely distinct. And I think that's why he has, his longevity as an artist is that because there was so much to gain out of each and every one of his films, 
<clears throat> films that you can just spend hours and hours just on one film, just what was intentional, what was intentional, what he's trying to say, the camera choices that he's doing, the production choices. It's, there's no filmmaker who's ever existed like him. And it's redundant to say because he's, he's one of the most famous artists in the world, I believe, transcending above just being a famous filmmaker. I think his films have transcended just being great movies because they are great pieces of art. And even though there, he, you know, even though there are filmmakers whose work I like more, there's no one really to be able to compare him to in terms of being at the right place at the right time and the consistency of nearly all of his work being top notch. Even my least favorite of his films, uh, I still think is very good, which is Spartacus. But it goes without saying that if you think of his work in a general pop culture context, you don't think they need to be revisited because you know them so well, you've seen the you've seen the work a hundred times or this or that. Watching these films again and again with years uh, uh, or however amount of time apart from one another and finding yourself changing as a person, different ideologies, different ways of thinking, and then watching these films with a new point of view, you're really going to gain something out of it that rewards you for multiple viewings. But that is about all the time that I have. Hopefully this audio came out okay. Thank you so much for listening.